Hey y'all, thanks for tuning in to this week's recording of Redeemer Church of Knoxville's Sunday Sermon. We're really glad to have you with us because we know that there are a million different podcasts that you could be listening to right now. So we're thankful that you've chosen to spend some of your day with us. We hope that this recording will be an encouragement to you and that God, by his spirit, will use his word to remind you of Jesus' love. If you would like to reach out to us, we would love to hear from you. To do that, please email us at office at redeemerknoxville.org. We also want to give a quick thank you shout out to Evie Andrus and Parker Green, who you hear playing our awesome intro and outro music here each week. Lastly, if you'd like to support Redeemer and her mission to Urban and University Knoxville, please visit www.redeemerknoxville.org and look for the little give button in the top right corner. Thank you so much, and here is this week's sermon. Well, if you have a Bible and you would like to follow along with me, you can do so by turning to Psalm 132. Uh, you can follow along with me in the Bible you brought. There are also Bibles in the pew racks that are near many of you. Uh, some of you have these things called smartphones. You probably have a Bible on that. Uh, it's also printed for you in your bulletin. So if you would like to follow along, we've tried to remove all uh, hindrances. We even had the kids leave. Uh, so if you'd like to follow along, uh, you can do so. I do want to welcome you uh, to Redeemer this morning. It's great to have you with us. My name's Sean Slade. I'm the pastor here. And we're so glad that you're here because we know that there are a million different things that you could be doing this morning. For instance, you could have said, I'm not going outside. It's hot. I'm not going outside. The city's full again. Where did all these people come? Where are these cars come from? It's because the students are back. Uh, others of you, you could be at Target and wondering where all the school supplies go. Uh, if you're a student, uh, you might have forgotten your jorts, and so you could be at home making a new pair of jorts since that's this year's uh, outfit of choice. Or you could still be uh, sort of sitting in the drive through at the cookout down on the strip after last night, but you're not, uh, you're here, and we're really glad to have you with us. Thanks for coming. The reality is that there really is nothing better that you could do with your time than worship Jesus, consider his claims upon your life, and think about the beauty and the kindness and the power of his salvation. And so I really do want to thank you for joining us this morning. Uh, welcome to Redeemer. Uh, what is Redeemer? Uh, well, Redeemer's a church. And what that means is that we're a community of people who are trying to learn how to love God and we're trying to learn how to love our neighbor. And fundamentally, what we believe is that Jesus is God. He's the Messiah. And he's entered into the world to die for our sins and to reveal the love of the Father. And so every week as his people, we gather together in his name to worship him so that we might learn to rest in that love that God has for us in Christ. And as we rest in his love, we then become a people who do love to gather together uh, in, in community. We love to watch football. We love to hang out. We love to hopscotch. But we really love to read the Bible and pray together so that we can remind each other of the great love that God has for us in Jesus. And as we rest in his love and then as we remind each other of his love, we then become a people who delight to gather together in service so that together we might reflect the love of God to our family, to our friends, to our neighbors who are here in Urban University, Knoxville. And hopefully in some way it would spill out into the entire earth, right? That's who we are. We're a people who are trying to learn how to love God. We're trying to learn how to love our neighbor as we rest, as we remind, and as we reflect. And so to help us do that, we're still in our summer series that we've entitled Stairway to Heaven, uh, Reflections on the Psalms of Ascent. And so the idea is this, that we're all on our own journey uh, to the heavenly city, to the city of God, to the new Jerusalem. And as we are on our journey, we then want to join our voices with the saints of the past who have set out on that same journey. 
And traditionally, what had happened is the saints of the past would sing these psalms, Psalms 120 through 134, as they would make their way in their annual, triannual pilgrimages uh, to Jerusalem. And so we want to join our voices with them. And so we began this series looking at Psalm 120. And then we went on to Psalm 121. And then after 121, we looked at 122, and then we went on to 23 and 24, and then 125, and then 126, then 127, 128. Then we looked at 129, and uh, you might remember then 130, and then we looked at 131 last week, all the way to today, where we're going to turn our attention to Psalm 132. And then believe it or not, next week, we're going to look at Psalm 133. But that'll actually be, here's the surprise, that'll actually be our last one. We're not going to make it to Psalm 100. Because we haven't quite made our way to the city of God anyway. Uh, it just happened that way with the calendar, actually. But, uh, and then we'll start our fall series, uh, which is entitled, uh, Questions God Asks. Uh, it seems to me that we all have questions of God, uh, but it might be worth our time to think about the questions he might ask of us. But this morning, uh, before we do that, let's look at Psalm 132. And the theme of the song is seeking remembrance. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place. You in the ark of your might, let your priests be clothed with righteousness. Let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it. For his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions, will satisfy her poor with bread, her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, would you pray with me now for the teaching? Heavenly Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we're thankful uh, that you are a God not hidden nor silent, but you are a God who delights to make yourself known. And you've done this uh, in your word uh, by your spirit. And ultimately, you've done so um, in the person and work of Jesus. So it is our prayer now that as we attend unto your word, that you, by your kindness and mercy, would attend unto us, that we might see lovely, beautiful, kind things of you. 
in this your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, one of my favorite uh, movie directors is a guy named Wes Anderson. And a couple of months ago, he released his new film entitled Asteroid City. I think it's a beautiful film. It's, it's, got, these, it's got a blue kind of uh, landscape set out in a desert. Uh, it's not only a beautiful movie, I think it's probably his most philosophical work to date. And anyway, in the movie, uh, it presents itself. So it's a movie presenting itself as a documentary about a play that never existed, right? Kind of meta, right? A movie uh, presenting itself as a documentary about a play that never existed. And so in the middle of the play, one of the characters does something that he doesn't quite understand why he does it. And so that bothers him. It bothers him throughout the rest of the play. And so during one scene, when he's no longer needed, when the stage is kind of filled with people, the actor leaves the stage to go visit the stage manager. And he asks the manager this rather profound question, and he says this, am I doing it right? Like, am I doing it right? I don't understand who my character is. I don't understand what we're doing. And I think that this is a question that really haunts all of us, right? Am I doing it right? Am I doing life right? Am I doing what I'm supposed to do? Because I don't really understand. I don't understand who I am. I don't understand where we're going. I don't understand what I'm doing. Is everything going to be okay? And the stage manager uh, saddles up next to him, sits down in front of him, and he says, just keep telling the story, right? Just keep telling the story. But the problem for the actor is this. Uh, he doesn't know the story. He doesn't know the way the story began, and he doesn't know how the story is going to end. And so in a little bit of a frustration, he leaves the theater, and he walks out into the alley, and there he sees this woman that he vaguely recognizes. And he vaguely recognizes her uh, because she had been cast earlier on to be his wife in the first and last act of the play. But for some reason, the directors had cut her from the play. And so her, her only role in the play is that she is a photograph. Right? She's a memory that kind of runs throughout the play. And when they meet, they have this conversation, and he says, I don't really understand what I'm doing. I don't really understand what this play is. I don't really understand why I'm doing the things I do. And then she goes on to explain the first act and then the last act. And then he's freed up to go back in and finish the play. And I think this is part of the modern predicament. We have cut God from the play. We, we've cut God from the story. And therefore, God has become a memory to us. And therefore, as we go through our life, we have all these longings that we don't know what to do with. We have these fears that tend to overwhelm us. We don't know who we are. We don't know what we're doing. And we don't know where we're going. And so this morning, what I want to try to do is I want to try to remind you of the story. Because as we look at this psalm, this psalm is a, a psalm of remembrance. Right? This psalm is a psalm of remembrance. And this psalm is wanting to remind us that God desires for his kingdom to be established. 
right? God desires for his kingdom to be established. Now, to understand this, uh, we need to remember how these psalms functioned within the life of God's people. So three times a year, year after year after year, the people of God would make their way through the hills and through the valleys of this earth to visit Jerusalem, to visit the royal city, to visit the place of God's dwelling. And on their way up to the city, they would sing these psalms. And so you can imagine that you're traveling uh, from Gilgal in the east. It's a tough road. Uh, you could imagine the difficulties of traveling from Gaza in the west or Hazar in the north or Hebron in the south. And as you would begin your ascent into Jerusalem, you would enter then into this royal city, Jerusalem. And in many ways, this would be like entering into Washington, D.C., right? You cross the Potomac, like George Washington crossing the Delaware. And there on your right, uh, you would see the Lincoln Memorial. And there on your left, you would see the White House. And just up in front of you, up high, you would look and you would see the tip of the Washington Monument. And there in front of you would be the Capitol. And immediately, as you see these things, you put on the Hamilton soundtrack, right? And you start thinking, this is the room where it all happens. Or if you're not into Hamilton, maybe you'll put on some Lee Greenwood or something. Uh, but here's the point. As you would begin to ascend up into Jerusalem, you would begin to remember God's promised kingdom and his great king, David. And this is the way the psalm actually reads. If you notice it, you'll see in verse 1, it says, Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured. Do you see that? As he goes into the city, he's saying, Remember David. And in Hebrew, this word for remember connotes more than just thinking back or calling to mind. But this word actually is about taking action in light of the past. And so then they began to sing, verse 8, Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. And then in verse 11, The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. And so what I hope you see is sort of the flow of this psalm. And what's happening is that they are remembering God's great covenant promise to send a king from the line of David to establish God's rule and his reign and to usher in God's kingdom, verse 12, forever. And this is what Israel longed for. And this is what the pilgrims longed for as they entered into the city. They longed for the kingdom and they longed for the king. But why? They long for the kingdom and the king because the kingdom of God is all about God's presence. And this is what the king was supposed to do. He was supposed to gather God's people before the presence of God himself. He was supposed to represent God to all the people. And so what I want you to notice in verse 1 through 5, David is reflecting his heart. And David's heart is to find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. David is wanting to unite the people of God, not around himself as king, but he is wanting to unite the people of God around God. And he wants the world to know that God is the true king who sits at the center of all life and delights to dwell with his people. 
And that's what we see in verse 6. Uh, clearly, behold, we heard of it in Ephrathath. We found it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Now, as you read uh, verse 6, you might be thinking, what is it? What is the it that they heard of, right? What is the it that they found in the fields of Jar? Well, it's the Ark of the Covenant. It's the Ark of the Covenant. Now, if you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know what the Ark of the Covenant is. I mean, the Ark of the Covenant is this powerful presence of God. Uh, it is known as the mercy seat. It is known as the footstool of God. It is when God would sit on his throne between heaven and earth, the mercy seat was his footstool. And so the ark was the symbol of God's presence. It was his throne. It was the most important thing for the nation of Israel. It would lead them into battle. It would receive the blood sacrifice. It was, thrown, uh, it was the throne upon which God sat between heaven and earth. And so this is a big deal because the ark was the manifestation of God's presence. And it's a big deal because the people of God had lost God's presence. I want you to remember the way the Bible began. The Bible began where all good stories begin uh, in the beginning. And in the beginning, uh, God made the heavens and the earth. He made everything, and everything that God made was good. And God then planted a garden in his creation, and there in the center of his garden, he placed humanity. Male and female, he placed us there at the center of that garden. And he placed us there so that we might enjoy his love, so that we might enjoy his care, so that we might celebrate his presence and his provision. And it was there in that garden that he set us apart to be his kings and queens over the creation. To reflect God's goodness as king. To reflect his reign and his wisdom over all the earth. And we are to be his people, a people who loved what he loves, who cares about the things that he cares about. We are to be a people who would then be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Right? We would tend his garden for his glory and for the good of his kingdom. And it was there in uh, God's presence uh, and under his rule and under his care that we found ourselves to be safe. And it was there in his presence and his care where we had the privilege of enjoying him. I think it's really easy for us to read the first two chapters of the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible, and think about, oh, the garden. Think about the hills, think about the streams, think about the trees, and think about all the fruit. But the point of the first two books of the Bible is that we actually got to enjoy him. We have to walk with him in the cool of the day, and we live by the light of his wisdom and for the glory of his name. But for some reason, uh, we wanted to create our own kingdoms, right? We wanted to exert our own power. We wanted to make our own decisions by our own wisdom. And in doing this, we then rejected the kingdom of God in order to build the kingdom of man. And if you think about this world, at all, if you think about your own life, you know that this didn't go well uh, for us. And so in many ways, I think we're a lot like those who eat at Burger King, 
right? It doesn't go well for us. Uh, we, we love to go to the Burger King because we know that at BK, you can have it your way, you rule. And it just is confusing to me because if I go into the Burger King, I would demand that it's my way. So how can the Burger King be the king? I mean, I'm the king when I go into Burger King. Forget the rant. But anyway, who rules? Is it me or is it the Burger King? I think it's me at Burger King, right? It's my kingdom. So here's the point. Uh, you can't have it both ways, right? Either the Burger King is the king or I'm the king, but not both. And so we're cast out of the garden, uh, not the olive garden, to just keep making it like a fast food joke. Uh, we're cast out of the garden of God's presence. Uh, but God knew that we would not be good uh, kings and queens on our own. And because he loved us too much to let us go, he made a promise. And he made this promise that he would restore us to himself and that once again, uh, God would be our God and we would be his people and he would refashion us to be kings and queens once again and we would be blessings to the entire world. That's his promise that he made to Abraham. And then we found ourselves sort of enslaved once again to these false gods and uh, false kings in Egypt. And God, who is king sitting on his throne, he heard our cries and he drew near to liberate us. And in the liberation that he worked for us as he brought us through the Red Sea and through uh, and out of Egypt, he then made us into a nation. And he invited us then to build this ark, this ark of the covenant. And, and that ark would represent God's promised presence with us. And that ark would then lead us and uh, fight for us and defend us and subdue us. And, and he would provide for us. And through that ark, he would show us mercy. But sadly, even having that ark, uh, we still wanted to be our own. We wanted to be a kingdom of our own, a kingdom that would be like all the other kingdoms of the earth, the kingdoms like those all around us. And so we wanted a king like their king. And we listened to their wisdom. We listened to their power. We looked to their gods. And in doing this, we then lost God's presence. You might remember, uh, if you've read through the Old Testament, you might remember that the Philistines then took our ark away. And when they took our ark, they put our ark, they tried to put God in their own temple. And when the ark was placed in their temple, you might remember that their gods then fell before the ark. They were crushed before the ark and then plagues began to break out. And they didn't like this. And so they sent the ark back to us, like return to sender. I think they wrote on the box. Um, you see it in, in uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, return to sender. Anyway, and so all this you see in 1 Samuel chapter 5 and, and chapter 6. But when the ark returned, um, the text tells us that we wanted to look upon God. We wanted to look upon God. In other words, we wanted to evaluate him. We wanted to make decisions about him. We wanted to control him. And because of this, uh, 70 men actually died. It was scary because God's holiness was too great for us. And because we didn't want to deal with his holiness, because we wanted to control God, we then sent the ark away to this place called uh, Kiriath Yarim, or as in Psalm 132 says, verse 6, the, the, the fields of Jar. In Hebrew, this word Jar means forest or wood. 
And so for 20 years, we left God in the woods because we couldn't control him, because we didn't want to deal with him, because we didn't want to deal with his holiness. And we left him there for 20 years, setting out to build God's kingdom apart from God. I want to pause here because this is a lot uh, that I've just covered, but I think it's important. And I think it's important because I think many of us uh, are a lot like the Israelites. Uh, We want God's kingdom, but we're not quite sure if we want God. Right? I mean, we want justice. Uh, We want mercy. Uh, We want to see power. Uh, We want love. We want goodness. We want righteousness. We want uh, peace. But we don't want God. And we want God, right, if we can control him, right? Or we want God if he will do what we want him to do. Or we want God if he doesn't demand too much from us. But I want to warn you that with God, uh, there is no if. That God just is, And because he is who he is, we must deal with him as he is. And I think that this is really important because it is easy for us to think that God needs to get uh, with uh, the program. He needs to update himself to fit with the times. It's easy for us to think that that God uh, ought to do what we want him to do. And it's easy for us to just sort of leave God in the woods and go about our own business. I think this is important uh, for all of us as we begin a new year. Uh, it's especially important for those of you starting the university because it will be a temptation for many of you to not want to deal with God and to not deal with his holiness. Because everything about the university is telling you that these next four years are all about you. Everything about the university is telling you that you are here to build your own kingdom. And I just want to say that the testimony of the Bible, the testimony of the gospel, is that there is no kingdom without the king. That there is no peace without the king. There is no flourishing apart from the king, and that there's no abundant life. There is no abundant life apart from him. And so what we see then in the story is that that God in his kindness anoints uh, David to be the king. And it's really interesting that the first thing that David does after having been anointed as the king is he takes these 30,000 chosen men to go and get the ark and bring the ark to Jerusalem. And the way that 2 Samuel uh, chapter 6 tells the story is that the ark of the Lord came into the city of David. And when you think about that, that language there, the ark of the Lord came into the city of David. It doesn't say that David brought the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but the ark came. Not humanity brought God back into the center of its life, but God inserted himself back into the center of his kingdom. And so what we're supposed to see is that it's God who returned to his people. 
That God is setting up his kingdom. That God is filling his kingdom with his presence. Why would he do that? With the people who keep forgetting him. With the people who keep turning away from him. With people who want nothing to do with him. He did it because he wanted to. He did it because it was his desire. Notice what it says in verse 13 and 14. Uh, For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. And so what I want you to see is that God wants to dwell with his people. It's not like he has to do it. He wants to do it. It's not like anyone's out there twisting his arm. He wants to be with his people. He's not bothered by it. He's not enduring it. He does it because he desires it. The very heart of God is to dwell once again with his people. And I really want you to consider this because I think many of us think that God really just puts up with us. That he just sort of uh, tolerates us. He just sort of endures us. But he doesn't love us. But the testimony of the Bible is that God loves you. That he desires you. He wants to dwell with you. And that's the goal of God's kingdom. To fill his kingdom with his presence that he might be with his people. And if you've ever read the Bible from the very beginning, in the very beginning we walked with him in the cool of the day, we're present. And how does the Bible end? In the very last book of the Bible, in Revelation 21, It says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. The point of the story from beginning to end is that God desires to be with his people. And when he is with his people, he will turn death into life, darkness into light, and sorrow into joy. And when that kingdom is then filled with his presence, what we see is that everyone rejoices. Everyone rejoices. And they rejoice because God's kingdom is a kingdom of grace. It is a kingdom that is overflowing with grace. I want you to notice what he says he will do in verse 15. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priest I will clothe with salvation. Her saints will shout for joy. Now, if you know the way that the story of David goes, I just want to remind you that when David uh, brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem in 2 Samuel chapter 6, He gathers these 30,000 chosen men together, and the text is very clear about what they did. They danced. They danced. And they celebrated, and they rejoiced. And it is very clear that King David then took off his royal robes. He stripped himself down to a linen ephod, and he danced before everyone with all of his might. And then it tells us that after uh, every six steps that they took, they would offer a sacrifice to God as if to say, every step of our lives is dependent upon your mercy. 
And then David blessed all the people. And it says he gave them cakes of bread and portions of meat and cakes of raisins to the men and the women, the slaves and the free. And everyone rejoiced. And the point of this story is to show us that before God, we are all the same. That before God, the slave is as valuable as the king. That in God's kingdom, before God, the poor have everything that the king has. That in God's kingdom, poverty gives way to abundance. And that in God's kingdom, the joy of the king becomes the joy of his people. It is a gracious, overflowing abundance of God's grace. But this kingdom, this gracious kingdom, was not a kingdom that was appreciated by everyone. And if you've read the story, you probably remember that David's wife, uh, Michael or McCall, uh, was angry. Very angry. She had her angry eyes on at David. Because she thought that David's actions were beneath him. That David was not acting like a king. It was wrong for the king to be like his servants. It was wrong for the king to dance. It was wrong for the king to serve his slaves. It was wrong for the king to share and distribute his wealth to everyone as they needed. It was wrong to interact with those who were beneath him. Because she had believed what many of us believe is that the king does not come to serve, right? but to be served. And so she didn't want to be married to a man who saw himself as equal to the poor. She wanted to be married to a man of royalty and power and dignity. But that's not the way of God's king. The way of God's king is that he made himself low, and he humbled himself and became a servant. I hope you see the point that I'm trying to make here. And the point is this, is that God's kingdom flips everything upside down. That God's kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this earth. And in God's kingdom, the king comes to serve, right? Not to be served. Does that sound familiar? It's what Jesus said, <laughs> in uh, Mark chapter 10. For even the Son of Man did not come to serve, uh, come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then you probably remember that the Apostle Paul in the letter to the Philippians told us that because Jesus became a servant, because he became obedient, even obedient to the point of death, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so this was their story. This was their song. As they thought about the kingdom. And as they thought about their generous king. But here's the problem. What they longed for was not a reality. You know, most of the theologians believe that the tradition of singing these psalms on their way to Jerusalem actually began after the exile. And this is a big deal because you'll probably remember that during the exile, the first temple was destroyed 
by the Babylonians. And from that moment on, we don't hear anything about the Ark of the Covenant again. And not only that, uh, with the exile, the Davidic king uh, was put to an end. No kingdom, no presence of God, right? No king. And so these journeys of the people of God into Jerusalem were actually these journeys of faith. Because all along the way, they were constantly confronted with the fact that what they longed for was not yet a reality. And so like us, they would journey year after year after year filled with this prayer. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And, And these journeys and these psalms were a reminder that though we do not yet experience the kingdom that we are longing for and looking for and hoping for, God's promises remain true. And God will do what he has promised. And that's the way this psalm ends. This psalm ends in this way. It's this avalanche of God's promises. Right? It's as if God is saying, I've not forgotten my promise. You see it in verse 13. I have chosen Zion. I desire it for my dwelling place. This is my dwelling place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. Do you see what God is saying? He's saying, this I will do. And he's repeating his promise that he will be with them, that he will be their God, that he will send his king, that he will restore the kingdom. And then it goes on, verse 14, I will do it. I will dwell forever. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation. Her saints will shout for joy. I will make a horn to sprout for David. His enemies will, I will clothe with shame. But on him his crown will shine. What he's saying is I will do everything that I have always promised to do. And so as we get through the psalm, it's like, well, who's this king? How's he going to do this? Well, as we make the same prayer, our own prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, what do we see as we look up to heaven? What is it that we see when we look up to our God? But we see the king who came down the stairway to us. We see this king who came to serve, not to be served. We see a king who is willing to die for his people, to die in their place for their sins. We see a king who then defeated death by the power of his resurrection. We see that king now who has ascended into heaven and is sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty where he rules and reigns over all things and he hears our prayers. And it's that very same king who has made a promise to us that he will return again. And so it's interesting that as you, if you read the Bible straight through, you read the Old Testament and towards the end of it, you're like, where's the kingdom? Where's the king? You come to the New Testament. And I want you to listen to the way the New Testament begins. In Matthew chapter 1, it's that genealogy that everyone ignores. Here's how it begins. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Where's the king? Where's the kingdom? How will it come? The answer the Bible gives, it'll come through Jesus. Jesus is the son of David, the one who sits on the throne, the one who ushers in the kingdom of God, the one who establishes God's presence. And though we do not see him now, like the saints of old, we journey to him by faith. 
waiting for the resurrected and ascended Jesus to come back, which is exactly the promise that the Bible makes at the very end. The very end of the Bible, the last book of the Bible, Revelation, the last chapter of the Bible, uh, chapter 22, Jesus has returned and listen to what he says. I am the root and the descendant of David. Here's the point. The point of the story is that Jesus is the true and better David. That Jesus is the fulfillment of all that God has promised to David and through David. And that's the point of this table as well. Because as we come to this table, we've got to recognize that this is the king's table. And he invites us to come to his table where he might feed us. And as we come to his table where he is feeding us, we're reminded that he is one who serves us. And he's one who not only strips down and dances, but he is one who was stripped naked and died for his people on the cross so that he might lead us into the joy of his kingdom. And so he's saying, come to my table and eat my bread and drink my cup. And do you know the promise that comes and is associated with the table? He says, eat and drink until I come again. This table is just reminding us of the story. The God who made us for himself is a God who has saved us for himself and a God who will return for us because he desires to. So to get back at the original question that Wes Anderson was asking, am I doing it right? Uh, This table is telling us, just keep telling the story. Like feed upon this story. Trust his story until he comes again.